Along with staff attrition and lost productivity, there is now another consequence from the Department of Agriculture's relocation of two research facilities back in 2019. The Government Accountability Office has found that USDA violated a provision of the Anti-Deficiency Act. And after GAO's new findings, lawmakers are calling for the passage of a bill to create more oversight in future agency relocations. We get more now from Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. The Anti-Deficiency Act says that you can't spend money that has not been appropriated and released from Treasury. So what did they do wrong here specifically? So that is the key. But for this specific provision, the one that the USDA violated, it's about the timing of the appropriations. One provision of the Anti-Deficiency Act requires that agencies notify both the House and Senate appropriations committees before they transfer appropriated funds from one area of the agency to another. and Reprogramming, in other words. Exactly. Right. So you have to get permission from Congress to reprogram funds, but this all involved the timing and the letters and back and forth. And tell us the timelines here. Exactly. So this did have to do with the timing for... NIFA, one of the two agencies that was relocated in 2019, GAO found they did meet those congressional obligations under the Anti-Deficiency Act with this 2018 letter that they sent to the two committees. But for the ERS, the other agency that had the relocation, they did not meet those same requirements. And it comes down to the funding coming from the 2019 continuing resolution. So initially, this funding for NIFA was was made through previous appropriations that USDA already had. But then for ERS later on, they used some funds from the continuing resolution, but didn't give an update to the two committees, which then resulted in the violation of the Anti-Deficiency Act here. Yeah, so that's really technical. It's not like, you SOBs, you're spending money all over the place. You shouldn't have reprogrammed. It sounds pretty technical here. How did this get to GAO in the first place? Yes, yeah, so it is very in the weeds here. And this came from a couple of Democrat lawmakers in the House, led by Jennifer Wexton from Virginia. And It was part of a push, I think, from these lawmakers as well to kind of bring some more attention to the Cost of Relocations Act. This is a new bill that they're trying to get taken up in a committee probably sometime this fall. It's not scheduled for the calendar yet, but it's something that, you know, this GAO decision definitely ties back to that to that push there. And GAO's precise decision then was what exactly? That USDA violated the Anti-Deficiency Act when it was for specifically the congressional notification requirements from that act. For relocating the ERS. Exactly. For ERS, but not for NIFA. So that it's a little bit technical how it all played out. But again, it has to do with the timeline of when they notified the, the two committees. So the GAO is not indicting former Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue or anything. I mean, <laughs> maybe that's next. But right now, that's what it stands. I mean, it's kind of moot at this point, right? Both have been re-relocated back to Washington, correct? That is correct, but there have been some other consequences, as you mentioned at the top, from those relocations. And in rebuilding the staff, they had a lot of staff attrition back in 2019 when they first relocated. That caused a lot of challenges with the agencies, both with you know, just losing employees. Generally, they weren't able to be as productive, of course, and then having to staff back up. So there were a lot of challenges in that. And then we're seeing you know, residual challenges as well. Another GAO report earlier this year found that when they rebuilt the staff, which was largely 
recovered by 2021, by September 2021, the resulting workforce, the new workforce, is a lot less experienced and also a lot less diverse. So, for example, the number of black employees at the agency has dropped off very significantly. Right. So, well, there's nothing you can do about that at this point except, you know, over time, trip people. Has anyone asked whether they got those letters for reprogramming for the re-relocation yet? Not yet. We haven't seen that, but this, I think, is still a significant decision to come from GAO here, and they are calling on USDA to, to kind of you know, acknowledge that they did or report that they did violate the Anti-Deficiency Act. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you can actually go to prison. You can be prosecuted for doing that. I don't know how often those kinds of things happen, but it's a pretty serious, the Anti-Deficiency Act goes back, I think, to the 19th century. When, it you does. Know, yeah. All right. And now you've mentioned, too, that there's a new bill aimed at this for more oversight. Tell us more about that legislation and what it would do. This legislation was introduced earlier this year. It's called the Conducting Oversight to Secure Transparency of Relocations Act, or if you want to put an acronym on it, the Cost of Relocations Act. The bill would essentially require any agency in the future who's looking to relocate that they conduct and publish a comprehensive cost-benefit analysis of the proposed move before carrying it out. So the lawmakers here, there are six of them who co-sponsored the House bill, and then Senator Chris Van Hollen has the companion legislation in the Senate. And basically they're trying to emphasize that you know this USDA relocation, in their opinion, didn't go so well. And now they're trying to prevent similar situations from occurring in the future. And is there bipartisan support for these bills? I mean, you could say that, well, maybe a Democratic administration would want to arbitrarily relocate an agency and, you know, and the Republicans wouldn't like that and vice versa. Or is it this all the Democrats because it happened during the Trump administration? It seems to be more the latter. There are so far only Democrat co-sponsors of the legislation. Um but, you know, again, it's, it's only got a couple of co-sponsors right now, and they're looking to try to get it taken up in uh, in a committee. But so far, there hasn't been a whole lot of movement beyond just the introduction of it earlier this year. Yeah, the whole thing is kind of sad because you could say there was a rationale for moving those agency headquarters out to the hinterland, so to speak, Kansas City, I think in Grand Junction, Colorado, to be close to where the action is and close to where the affected entities are by what they do. But the case was not made very carefully. It was just, let's go, get up and go. And of course, with consequences to the workforce, as you pointed out. So, Exactly. There there was maybe in theory the idea some people can get behind that and support that. But at least in terms of the way the one went for USDA, there were a lot of negative consequences here. And a lot of it was just in the planning and execution of the relocation. They didn't consider you know, how many employees would actually leave the agency when it was relocated. And of course, a lot of people did leave. And it's kind of funny when you think about it, because the Agriculture Department through other parts of USDA, not ERS and NIFA, but they've got about seven or 8,000 offices somewhere in between there throughout the country for Farm Service Administration work. It's almost like Social Security. Every county almost, you know, every few counties, there is a USDA office. It seems like they could have found a desk somewhere for someone that has to do with something out west at a desk out west without moving the whole thing lock, stock, and barrel. Just right. my view. Right. You know, it's, it is uh, it is a huge agency. I think the, these two facilities represent pretty much a pretty small portion of USDA overall, but you know, this is something that has gotten a lot of attention in the last couple of years. Yeah, partner, you're an USDA. Let me see the dirt and the trail of those boots. Federal News Network's 
Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thank you. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And And I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always make sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, 
right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that. We rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this. And I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast a vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, d- d- describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that, believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed, uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things, and that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes, right? yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you're asking for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. 
And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can't. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief in my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.